Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Uh, I just want to welcome you back to part three of this series titled Tension. The subtitle of it is uh, Living in the Balance. And the, the whole point of this particular series is to help us get clear about some difficult truths that we wrestle with in the Bible. Because if you have read the Bible, if you have spent much time in church or you've, you've spent much time you know, about around the Bible, you've probably experienced that. I mean, there are some ideas in the Bible that seem to be in opposition to one another. There seem to be some ideas in the Bible that seem to be at odds with one another. Theological ideas and principles that seem to stand in contrast with one another in the same Bible. For instance, excuse me, we are told uh, in the Bible that you were saved by grace through faith. It is not the result of your works. Okay? It's a gift from God. It's not something you can do. But on the other hand, we are told that in this same Bible, that faith without works is dead. That faith that doesn't manifest itself in some good works is useless. It's a dead faith. So which is it? Okay? Which is true? Because both these ideas seem to be in opposition to one another. Okay? Which, which one is it? You know, are you saved by grace through faith? Or, or, or faith without works is dead? Well, it's actually both. Okay? Both are true. Well, how can that be? How can that be possible? Well, it's possible because there's a tension that is created between these two ideas. It's like, like a rope. Okay? You have on one end an idea that applies pressure to one end, okay? And then the other end is another idea that applies pressure to it. Okay? And, and, and what happens is the resulting tension. That's what happens to ropes when you actually apply tension to them there, or, or, or uh, put a load on them is there's tension on the rope. And as we've talked about that the truth, many of the truths that we embrace in the Bible really are found in the tension between two or more ideas that really seem to be at odds with one another. For instance, last week, I mean, for instance, like in week one, we explored the tension between grace and truth. Okay? We're told that Jesus came to the earth full of, full to the brim of grace and truth. He is full of both grace and truth. And, and the tricky part about that is grace says, I don't condemn you. But on the other hand, truth says, what you did is a sin, so you need to not do that anymore. Right? Grace says that you're forgiven, but then truth says you're accountable for your actions. Well, which is it? Am I, am I forgiven or am I accountable? Well, it's, it's both. You see, Jesus came to save us and He gave us grace and He forgives us of our sins, but at the same time, that, that grace should move our hearts in gratitude to want to follow God's truth. You see, salvation rest in the tension between grace and truth. Because, because with, with, without truth, like the fact that I'm a sinner and I can't do anything about it, and, and, and the price of my sin is really high, without that truth, there can be no salvation. I can't be saved unless I know the truth. But at the same time, without grace, I can't be saved either because it doesn't matter how much truth I know. It doesn't matter how much truth I store up Without grace, I can't be saved. I need both grace and truth to be set free. And the reality of salvation is in the tension between grace and truth. And then last week, we, we talked about the tension of obedience. Okay, on the one hand, you're saved by grace through faith. And on the other hand, you know, if with faith without works is, is dead. Okay? Well, which is, it's both. Because it's, because it's true. You are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't do anything for it. You can't even take credit for it. But in that same process of being saved by grace through faith, though, something inside of you naturally must change. Because the truth is really simple. If you understand, and I mean really understand the problem that you're facing, 
Okay? If you understand the problem you face being a sinner and the dire consequences that await you after you die, and also the meaningless and the hopelessness of life without salvation, and you actually understand the, the price that was paid so that you can actually have this gift of salvation offered to you, even though you don't deserve it, if you understand that as a result of that understanding, you actually turn towards Christ and away from your sin, and you embrace Him in faith, you do all those things, I'm telling you right now, it's impossible for you not to change. It's impossible. Okay? If you take that step and actually put your faith in Christ, you will change. And that change will urge you on towards obedience to God's Word. Now, we don't obey to get saved. Okay, We know that. We obey because we are saved. You don't obey because you have to. You obey because there's a desire to honor God, the God that saved you. And so, yes, you're saved by grace. And, yes, faith without works is dead. Because the truth is, if you were not moved towards obedience in some level because of the grace that was given to you, chances are you really didn't understand. You really didn't understand and turn towards Christ in repentance in the first place. And so the truth about salvation and about obedience exists in this tension. And there's a lot of this kind of tension in the Bible. Now, with that, so far we've really kind of talked about the, you know, you know, the grace and truth and what that means for salvation and how we're supposed to live as people because we're supposed to be full of grace and truth as well. Okay, and we talked about the fact that if you follow Jesus and you have a relationship with Him and you accept His gift of salvation, that there's an expectation of us continually becoming more and more obedient. It's called sanctification to to God's commands and His calling in our lives. Well, today. We need to actually move beyond God's commands and God's law. We need to talk about the gray area in our lives because we all have lots of gray area in our lives. I mean, the truth is, if you follow Jesus, I mean, there are some things that become pretty clear, okay? You start seeing some things you need to do. You start seeing some things you need to stop doing. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're going to be instantly perfect because that's not going to happen. But there are some things that become clear right away when you begin to follow Jesus, like hating people. I don't care if you're a Christian for 10 minutes or 100 years. You can't in any way, shape, or form justify hating someone. Okay? You might still want to hate them, but you can't justify it because it's clear. Jesus speaks about it very plainly. He says, love your neighbors. Okay? As yourself. And then he says, uh, love each other. Talking about Christians, love each other like I've loved you. And then, if that wasn't hard enough, he says, love your enemies. Okay? And in every one of those statements, all three of those love statements, he uses the word agapeo, which means not just like love emotionally. It means to love with your action, with your will. It is a decision to love. It is unconditional love. So hating someone isn't a gray area. It becomes really clear once you become a Christian, right? Okay. Other things that become clear is the fact that we're expected to forgive as we've been forgiven. Okay? Or, or, or that we're to take care of people that, that, are, that are poor and helpless. We're to be good to people. We're to gather together for worship you know, in, in, in a big group. And we're to have fellowship and pray for one another and, and read the Bible. Those things become clear. Okay? Now again, not saying that we're going to be perfect at any of these things. Because this side of eternity, you're not going to be perfect. But as a Christian, there are things that become clear that we are supposed to do. For instance, no sincere Christian is going to say, God told me that reading the Bible, giving to the church, and praying. Praying is just a waste of time. Okay? It's just not going to happen. I mean, we all know. If somebody actually has met Jesus, knows that that's just not the truth. Okay? These things we know are, are things we need to, to grow in. Also, as Christians, we begin to understand that God has expectations for our lives. We become familiar with words like godliness and righteousness, holiness and self-control. 
And, and we know that there's a standard that God expects for us to live by. Okay? That, that we, saved by grace Christians, still have a standard that God expects us to live by. And, we, and as we try to wiggle out of it, we'll say things, well, you know, I live by grace. Because it's all about grace. And God's got a grace. And so, you know, He gave me grace. You know, we just want to throw the grace word around. But Paul says it like this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people... Now watch this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in when this present age. You see, there's an expectation for us to live right in the eyes of the Lord now, in this life. There's a moral standard or law that we are to abide, not just in heaven, but here on earth. Even if we don't like it, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, I still recognize that God says some things are okay and some things are not okay. I can try to twist it. I can try to turn it. But the truth is that God, in His Word, is really, really clear about a lot of things. Now, some people will say, well, that's just the Old Testament. You know, I mean, that's all about the law. And if you don't keep the whole law, then you're guilty of it all. In fact, you know, if you eat pork and you eat shellfish and you eat and you wear clothes that have different materials on them, then you're just as guilty as an adulterer and as a murderer by the law. That's why we need grace. Well, the truth is, as Christians, we should have a basic understanding that there's a difference between ceremonial and cleanliness law and, 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 and moral law. Okay? There's a difference between cleanliness and ceremonial law and moral law. Okay? And for instance, eating shellfish, though considered unclean for like Jewish people, all right, that really poses no problem for the person who's not Jewish. Okay? Especially those of us who are not Jewish who like to go eat a red lobster. All right? Yeah. But on the other hand, murdering in cold blood, uh, stealing from someone, lying in a way that gets them hurt, raping someone. In, that, in those cases, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish, if you're Gentile, American, Brazilian. It doesn't matter you know, your education level. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how ugly you are. Okay? These all things are wrong for everyone. There is a moral law that applies to Everyone, And this moral law constitutes things like the Ten Commandments. All right? because, because it's wrong to worship idols. Okay? It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to, to, to covet. Okay? But also, besides, the, mor- besides that, the moral law inclo- includes other issues as well, such as drunkenness and violence and greed and envy and, and sexual impurity, which, by the way, includes everything okay? uh, from every form of sex outside of of, of a marriage between a man and woman, including pornography. Okay? The Bible, or God's Word, clearly defines what is moral and what is acceptable with respect to living and behavior and those who follow them. And as we said, you know, there, there's an explanation for us to grow. There's an expectation for us to grow in obedience to these, these commands, to this moral code. Um, but with that, you know, based on what we also know in God's Word, there's some things that maybe aren't quite explicit, okay? But what we do know from God's Word can actually make clear the things that maybe aren't clearly 
defined. All right? There are some things that we can take and apply from God's Word. For instance, the Bible doesn't say, Thou shalt not have an abortion. Okay? It doesn't say that. But the Bible is clear about the fact that God forms us in our mother's womb. And that we are His creation. That, that He is He that who made us. And that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And inside the womb, we're not just a gelatinous you know, piece of tissue. We're people. And God knows us as people inside our womb. And we know that taking an innocent life you know, is never okay. It's murder. All right? And we know based on that, we can confidently assert then, then, then abortion is immoral. That this is something that God does not want to have happen. Now, this is not a judgment or condemnation. This is just simply the truth. Okay? And in the same way, uh, there are other things. Like the Bible doesn't say specifically, thou shalt not look at pornography. It doesn't say explicitly that thou shalt not do crystal meth. It doesn't explicitly say, thou shalt not run a red light. But we all have an understanding that that's still subject to God's moral law. That that somehow it still relates to the truth that He's revealed to, about Himself in His Word. So we understand... You know, we're expected to grow in obedience to these things as well. Now, again, I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect. Again, this side of eternity, it's not going to happen. You're going to fall down. And I'm not also saying that if you fall down, you're going to lose your salvation. Because that, again, is not the story of the gospel. What I'm saying is, is we all understand, and we all have come to this understanding, if you're a Christian, that there's a call to obedience to this moral law. And that you're to grow in that obedience. If you're saved, you will actually begin to grow in that obedience. Now, with that, what about the stuff that the Bible doesn't really cover? I mean, what about the gray areas of our life? Because there are a lot of gray areas, okay? There are things that don't seem to be really have a right or wrong answer. Okay, like, what kind of car should I buy? Okay? Um, you know, should I rent a house or should I buy a house? Should I wear a t-shirt? Should I wear a button-up? All right? I mean... Can, can I have a glass of wine with dinner? I mean, can, should I, can I watch you know, NCI's reruns on TV? Right? I mean, or should I change jobs? Or should I speak my mind about this issue? You know, or should I wait? Right? Or what about this one? Should I eat at the cafe, the roadhouse, or Domingo's after church for lunch? Right? I know I'm making you hungry, right? So, all right. But the truth is, there's lots of these kinds of decisions, choices, and behaviors that simply are not part of God's moral law. They don't have a clear moral right or wrong component to them. They're not defined by morality. In fact, theologically speaking, these kind of things are called morally indifferent acts. Okay? They're acts and behaviors and decisions that really don't have a moral component to them. They're morally indifferent. All right? There's no moral right. There's no moral wrong answer to them. There's no clear expectation from God what it is you are supposed to do in those situations. Okay? They are morally indifferent acts. And these morally indifferent acts usually fall in three essential categories. Number one, the first category is, is, that it is personal decisions. Okay? Personal decisions that I make have really no moral consequences like, should I eat tuna or turkey for lunch? I mean, there's like really no morality there. Okay? Should I wear green or should I wear black? Should I buy you know, a car or should I wait? Should I call? Should I text? Should I email? Should I Twitter? All right? there's no, there, are moral, there, there, there are morally indifferent decisions. And there's no real right answer. Okay? It's really just subject to based on how I feel and what I think and my preferences. Okay? The second set of morally indifferent acts are behaviors that are issues not clearly defined by God's law. Again, can a Christian have a glass of wine with dinner? Can they have a beer with their friend? All right? Because the truth is, you know, if you study the Bible, there's no real like, prohibition against those things. All right? 
What about if, uh, is it okay for me to listen to non-Christian music? Is it okay for me to go to the movies? You know, is it okay for me to watch dramas on TV? Is it okay, you know, uh, for me to have a tattoo? Is it okay for me to play video games? Okay, there are lots of decisions like that that are not clearly defined by God's moral law. But certainly they require thought and they require introspection and even prayer. And the third category of morally indifferent acts are decisions to exercise or not exercise my personal rights. I mean, you have a personal right, right? Then you you have a personal right. It's yours. And there's nothing um, moral or immoral about you exercising that right or not exercising that right. Like free speech. You have the right to speak your mind, but you don't always have to exercise it, right? I mean, in our country, you have the right to sue someone if they injure you, right? And you have the right to, to exercise it or not. I mean, you can do that. It's your choice. Or how about, you know, when somebody blasts you on Facebook, Right? You have a right to get angry, don't you? Sure. Right? You have a right to respond you know, in turn on Facebook, don't you? Well, yeah. Well, should you? I don't know. It depends. Right? Sometimes you exercise that right and sometimes you don't. It's your right to exercise. It's one of those, those decisions that seem to be morally indifferent. Now, it, it's part of this gray area of our lives. And these, these parts of our lives and these decisions that we make, they don't seem to be clearly addressed always in the Bible. It's almost as if these things really kind of fall outside of what God cares about. It's like, God doesn't care, but is that the truth? Well, the question that we really need to ask ourselves is this. Does any of this even matter to God? Do the morally indifferent decisions I make actually matter to God? Do the gray areas of my life matter to God? Especially when they're clearly morally indifferent. Does this stuff, does God even care about this stuff? And the answer to that question is absolutely. Because, here's the truth. Just because something is morally indifferent, just because something is a morally indifferent act does not mean that it's devoid of moral implications and consequences. Because every choice you make has implications and consequences somewhere. Every decision you make affects something. Every decision you make affects somebody. Every choice you make has a rippling effect into the rest of the world. For example... Okay? Let's just talk about someone exercising their right to respond to somebody on Facebook. It's certainly within a person's right to defend themselves and respond. What are the potential rippling effects of that decision? Well, number one, you know, your words that you write, you type on Facebook, are not accompanied with a tone of voice, and they're not accompanied with, with body language, which means your words could very easily be misinterpreted. Okay? That's one of the rippling effects, right? Number two, your words, rather than clearing your name, can simply cause the issue to get bigger and bigger and out of control. Anybody been there before on Facebook? Yeah, okay, we, we kind of know that, right? Your words can, can read, can be read by some people, you know, and maybe they don't know who you are and they don't really understand the full story, but now because of the way that you're reacting and your emotions or whatever, they have a slanted perspective of you. And here's the thing is that they might in turn be the person that, that interviews you for a job or they might be somebody that has a decision to make that, that relates to your life and they might make a decision based on what they saw. Right? Or worse yet, there might be something you, somebody you might have an opportunity later on to be able to share the gospel with, but you've lost credibility with that person because you handled yourself in a way that struck them wrong on social media. Number four, you can just get stuck simply going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with someone and then end up realizing you've wasted a lot of time and a lot of energy and you've accomplished nothing except getting more upset. Who's been there? Yeah. All right. Exactly. 
Okay, these are all the potential implications of, of an immorally indifferent act, <laughs> like responding on Facebook, that affect other people. So yes, God cares about your decisions. He cares about the implications. That's why the Bible, and He gives us this tension point to help us to navigate through the murky areas of our gray areas of our lives. Okay? It, 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 that, that way we can do what's good for us and what's good for other people and good, and, and, and it's also, most importantly, it honors Him. Right? And, and so this tension point is simply can be defined this way. Can I... Or should I? <laughs> right? On one end, can I do something? You know, can I do what I want to do? I mean, is, what, is, is this decision about to make, is it permissible? Is it lawful? Can I do it? But on the other end of this tension point, you know, is, is should I? Should I make this decision? Should I do what I want to do? Is it really the right thing to do right now? Is it beneficial? Is it good? Is it, you know, potentially harmful? Should I? So here's this tension. Can I? Should I? Because the truth is, there are times that you can do something that you really shouldn't do it. It's like the issue of credit cards. Can I use my credit card? Well, yeah, it's your credit card. It's your money. It's your credit score. You know, you can certainly, you can use it, but should I use my credit card? Well, that's a different question altogether, isn't it? Right? There's this tension. Just because you know, something's allowed doesn't mean that I should, right? Can I or should I? And the Apostle Paul actually addresses this very tension and question in his letter to the Corinthians. And he, f- he actually frames it really, really well. Uh, in fact, he does, he does so in both 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 12 and, and, and 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He says essentially this. In both of these texts, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. I have the right to basically do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Okay, now, before we get too far into this text, we need to talk about a couple of things regarding the, the, the context of this passage. Number one, the text says that all things are lawful. But that doesn't literally mean everything is actually lawful because obviously there are things that are not lawful. There are things that are wrong. In fact, in chapter, this, in chapter 6, in the preceding paragraph to that very verse, Paul points out some things that are not lawful, even close, and that there are huge consequences that, that relate to those things. He says, um, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is making it very clear there are still some things that are not lawful and carry with them a huge penalty. And he says... And, and, and such were you, some of such were some of you. Okay? What he says is you used to do those things. Okay? You used to be like that. But then he goes on and says, But you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You changed. You accepted the gift of salvation, and some something inside of you changed. You're not who you used to be. The old is gone and the new has come. You have, you've, you're not perfect yet, right? But, but you're, you've turned away from these things, right? And you know that these things are wrong. And so then Paul says, you know, all things are lawful. It doesn't literally mean all things, okay? It's a figure of speech. Which leads to the second thing we need to understand. When Paul says all things are lawful, especially here in, in chapter 6, he's not making a declaration, okay? He's actually parroting a phrase that the Corinthian Christians are using in order to justify their abuse of their Christian freedom. 
Because that was the motto. We're free in Christ to do really what we want to do. All things are lawful for me, is what they would say. Okay? And that's why in the ESV, you'll see, okay, when you read the, like the, in the, the English Standard Version, when it says all things are lawful, notice the quotes that are around that. That's Paul quoting someone else. Okay? Because those quotes aren't around the rest of the text. That's why in the NIV, the passage gets rendered this way. It says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. Because the Corinthians, what they were trying to do is trying to blind eye to the law. And, 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 some, and what they were trying to do is also overextend their freedom, particularly in the area of sexual immorality. Because in Roman culture, like our culture today, sexual immorality was not a big deal. Okay, Sex before marriage, adultery, prostitution, sex with children, homosexuality were all accepted norms at the time. It was like nobody cared. It was like nobody really cared. In fact, there was an expectation that you actually had your own sexual deviancy, that you had some kind of sexual vice. And they, and they just justified this like our culture does. In fact, Paul speaks that. He says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, which is a common expression that the Roman culture used that meant, that said, hey, I've got an appetite for a reason, right? right? Your stomach growls because it, it's made to receive food. And your body craves certain sexual experiences because that's what it was designed for. That's what they were saying. And so it's like today they would, they would justify deviant sexual behavior. And they would say things like, well, that's just how I'm made. That's how I'm wired up. That's, the, that, that's my, you know, that, that this, this appetite I have, I have it for a reason. That's how God made me. I can't help who I'm attracted to. And, and it's, it's wrong for me to try to stifle my desires and my appetites. Okay? I'm just going to do what is natural for me. But Paul says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both. I mean, excuse me, God will destroy both one and then the other. The body is meant for, not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so, two things to keep in mind as we examine this text. Number one, is not all things are literally, you know, lawful, because some things are still absolutely wrong. And number two, this whole discussion is born out of Paul addressing the Corinthians' desire to ignore moral law and overextend their Christian freedom. Now with that, through this discussion in this text, Paul actually helps us to deal with the gray areas in our own lives. Because in this discussion, he develops several principles that, can, that we can actually use in our day-to-day lives in order to, um, to make the very best decisions we can. When things seem to be really morally indifferent, he gives us practical principles that we can actually apply to our lives so that we can use in this tension between can I and should I. And the first principle that came out of this text says... All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. So here's what Paul's saying. He says, um, I have lots of freedom as a Christian, and I can do the things that I want to do that are permissible for me to do. Okay, But not everything I'm allowed to do is actually helpful. In fact, there are some things that I have the right to do that actually can be trouble for me. Okay? There are some things I'm allowed to do that can actually dominate me and actually master me, or better stated, actually can enslave me. That's what he's saying here. He says, I can do what I want to do, okay? but, but I'm not going to do the things that are going to actually in turn enslave me because I'm not going to be mastered by anything because if I'm mastered by anything else but God, that is a sin. And so from this text, we can develop a practical question that helps us to make good choices when we face what seems to be a morally indifferent act. And the question is simply this. Does this behavior have the ability okay, 
to, or the potential to enslave me? Right? That's the important question. Does this behavior or activity or decision have the potential to enslave me? Okay? Can I have a glass of wine with dinner? Well, does it have the, the ability to enslave you? I mean, are you someone who, who drinks a glass of wine and can stop? Okay? I mean, are you someone who can have one beer without having to drink six? Does it have the ability to enslave you? Is this something that, that, that can be an addiction? Because addictions can enslave us. Okay? Whether it's alcohol or food or drugs or sex or television or playing video games or Facebook. Okay? You can become enslaved and mastered by these addictions. Now another way that you can become enslaved is by overcommitting. You commit to so many things that you lose your freedom to spend your time in a way that, that, that's productive. You can, lose, you, you, can, you, you can be so overcommitted you lose your ability to have free time to spend time with God. You overcommit so much that you're running from this thing into that thing and you're like hitting the ground running and you don't even have time to pray. You don't even have time to get into the Word of God. You can be in, enslaved by overcommitting. Will, will, will taking on that project become you know, your shackles to me? Will it enslave me? Now, you can also be enslaved by debt. Okay? You want something, but you can't pay for it, and so you finance it. And that's not always a bad thing, because we finance lots of things. All right? But when your debt gets to the point that you have no margin for error, okay, and you can't be generous and give to God and help other people that are in need, then you can become a slave to debt. And lots of people, that happens to lots of people. All right? It's a hard place to be in. So the first question you have to ask yourself when you're, when you're considering personal decisions or when you're thinking about you know, things that are not clearly spelled out in the Word of God okay, or when you're thinking about exercising a right that you have, the question really to ask is, will this enslave me? Will this get me tangled up? Will this cause me to, to will, will I have to bow down to this master? For instance, um, the term financially is called golden handcuffs. Kim and I, you know, when we lived in Bakersfield, I made a lot of money. But we had a lot of nice stuff. And then I come to realize, like, I can't even like, work less because i got to pay for all this stuff. You know, it's being a slave to, you know, to debt. Now, the second principle I found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 begins in verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own, but the good of his neighbor. So here's what he's saying. He goes, yeah, I can do what I want to do. But not everything that I do is beneficial. Okay? There are some things that I have the right to do, but not every one of those things you know, are really helpful. In fact, they might be fine for me, but they're not productive. You know? And they might even be destructive for other people. I mean, there are things that I'm allowed to do that don't build people up. So what I need to do is I need to look past myself, I need to look past me and my desires and my wants and consider how this might affect other people around me. I need to make sure that I examine all aspects of people around me and make sure that you know what I'm doing doesn't affect them negatively. Okay, and so from this text we can actually pick up two related questions. Okay, so so question number two here is how will you how how will this affect the lost? Because we're all surrounded by lost people who look to you and what you do and how you behave. And they watch you and see how you live because they want to know, really, what it means to be a Christian. They don't want to hear what you say. They want to watch and see how you live. So how will what I'm doing affect the lost? And the other question is, is how, do, how is what I'm going to do, how is it going to affect other believers? Because if you're a Christian, you have other Christians in your life. 
You go to church with Christians. You go to a small group with them. People that you work with. Other parents that have kids on your sports team. Okay? People that, 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 you follow, that follow you on social media. Okay? There are Christians that, that live in various stages of maturity all around you. They have their own battles and they have their own struggles. And so we have to consider how our own personal choices and our own rights, to, you know, exercising our rights and our freedoms in Christ, how those affect the people around us. I mean, so you might ask, can I have a glass of wine with dinner? Well, if you, are you having a glass of wine with someone who doesn't understand your Christian freedom and possibly think that you're a hypocrite, ruining your ability to be a good witness to them? Okay. Probably not a good idea then, right? Or maybe you're having a beer with a young Christian who's battling self-control. Again, not a good idea because the truth is if you follow Christ, you want to help people and build them up. You don't want to be a stumbling block and tear them down. That is exactly that is exactly why I am very careful what I post on social media. I try to post things that are encouraging. I try to post things that lift people up. I try to make people smile. I try to make people laugh. I try to be positive and share important community event information. Okay, I don't vent. I don't criticize. I avoid controversies on Facebook. I usually don't even respond to the latest drama, even when it's about me, unless I can actually clearly explain something and correct a misunderstanding without it blowing up. I don't take people to task. I don't chew people out on social media. I don't share, also, things that are risque. I, share, I don't share things that are inappropriate. I don't share things that have profanity because it's not helpful. Right? In fact, on a side note, if you're someone who posts, I love Jesus, and, and you're posting all these scripture references, and then later on in your timeline you got posts of like half-naked girls on motorcycles you know, or, 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 or half-naked men or something like that, or you know, your, your posts are riddled with profanity and references to drugs or, or uh, you know, the F word and this and that, okay? it, 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 or if you, or you're posting pictures of yourself going to church saying, I love my church family, and the next thing you're pitch, posting pictures of you getting hammered at a party somewhere, you have a credibility problem. Okay, that's the danger of social media. You have a credibility problem. You have now become officially a stumbling block, block from, for someone. Okay, you're not doing yourself, and you're not doing the cause of Christ any favors if that's how you handle your social media. Now, you absolutely have the right to post what you want to post. It's a free country, right? I have the right to post what I want to post. Okay, all right. But I am very careful because I have friends who are believers. And I have friends who are not believers. And there are people that I know that are in various spiritual stages. And I don't want to do anything to cause them to stumble. I don't want to do anything that makes the, the church look bad. I don't want to do anything that turns people away from Christ or stunts someone's spiritual growth. That's why we need to consider how our morally indifferent decisions affect those around us. Both the lost and other believers. Because there's always, whether we like it or not, there's always a rippling effect to our decisions. Now, the fourth question or the principle uh, when it comes up um, to these things, um, you know, especially things that are not clearly spelled out in the Bible or personal choices, is simply this. Is, is it wise? Is it wise? Over and over and over and over again, the Bible exhorts us to seek wisdom, to be wise, to look for wisdom. In fact, James tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously, because it's important, he gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We need to make sure that the things that we're doing are wise. Because just because we can do something doesn't mean it's the wise thing to do. Can I use my credit card to go on vacation? Well, you can, but is it wise? How long is it going to take you to pay that off? 
How much is it going to cost you in the long run? Can I be a jerk to my boss? You can. Is it wise? You know? Can I tell my wife, I ain't helping you with the laundry no more? You can. But is it wise? I'll be honest with you, it ain't wise, okay? So, all right. Every decision we make has consequences. Okay? That is why you need wisdom. For instance, under this calm exterior, someone sometimes can get fired up a little bit. Sometimes I get really fired up. And sometimes I just want to react in the moment in my emotions. Sometimes I just want to say something. Sometimes I just want to take action. Sometimes I even want to go to Facebook. Okay? Now, knowing that's who I am, I have learned to seek counsel because I know that in the moment when I'm angry, I don't have the ability to make a wise decision. And so I end up going and talk to other people who are advisors in my life who are interested to make sure that I do act wisely. Okay? And so I'll be like, well, this happened and that happened. I'm so frustrated. And man, uh, and I'm just going to do this. And I'll say, what do you think? And, and if they respond with, well, that's one way to go, um, then I know that it's not a wise decision. Right? <laughs> right? So I end up changing my approach because I don't want to be unwise. I want to be wise. Okay? So the question that we need to ask with really all our decisions, whether it's how we use our money or how we handle relationships, with how we, you know, how we do anything, is it wise? Okay? And so, uh, then the, the fifth principle we need to consider, this is really the kind of the weird one, okay? Um, it's kind of weird because there, there are things that you can do that uh, you can justify to yourself. You know, this is not going to enslave me, right? And, and, and you know what? You can say, well, you know what? This is not going to hurt anybody around me. For, it's not going to hurt anybody for the cause of Christ, right? And, you know, this decision doesn't even have a really, uh, you know, um, a wise or unwise aspect to it. It's just a decision, right? But there's still some of those decisions that you go, yeah, but I'm struggling with it, Right? You know, some things inside of you just didn't, didn't have peace. You know, you want to do it, but you're considering doing it, but something about it is just not sitting well with you. You feel guilty about it, or it's just, it's not there. And the question that you have to ask yourself, you know, when you face this is, can I do this with a clean conscience? Okay. That's an important question that we don't oftentimes ask. Can I do this in faith? Because Paul says in the letter to the Romans, talking about the exercise of Christian freedom, he said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I mean, if you can't do anything with a clear conscience, then don't do it, right? I mean, if, you, if, if having a glass of wine bothers your conscience, then, then don't do it, right? If eating that second piece of cake makes you feel guilty, don't do it, right? If getting a tattoo on your forearm is, you know, you know, makes you feel kind of weird, all right, then just don't do it. If you feel uneasy about the music you're listening to, if you feel weird about the movies you're watching, then give them up. Because Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin. Whatever you do that is not anchored to the confidence that comes from faith and it bothers your conscience is actually no longer morally indifferent. You need to understand that. It's no longer morally indifferent. It becomes a sin. It becomes wrong for you to do. And so you need to ask yourself, can I do this? Can I make this decision? Can I exercise my right in this instance with a clear conscience? Can I do this in complete faith? Right? And if you can't, don't. Now, the final principle I want to talk about is actually the most important. Okay, I saved it for last because 
if I went first, then the rest of you would just shut down and not listen to the rest of them. So, um, but it's actually the most important one. In fact, if you find yourself in a situation where you're like, I need to make a personal decision, or you know, the Bible doesn't really cover that morally, but I'm not really sure, or you know, I, I don't know if I should exercise my right or not. You get in that position, and you're going, man, Pastor Sherman, he like had this 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 this, this sermon, um, and he said these six things, but I can't remember. I really wish I would have memorized one of them. Well, if you're going to memorize one, okay, if there's one that you're going to keep in memory, if it's, if it's going to come to your recollection, if, if it's going to be one then memorize this last one, okay? Because it is the most important. In fact, if you get all the other questions, the other five questions in your favor and this one's wrong, then it doesn't matter, right? It's the trump card. It is the question that you have to get right. In fact, Paul actually lays it out for us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all. All. A-L-L. Do all to the glory of God. Do everything to the glory of God. So the question that you need to ask yourself is, will this glorify God? You ask that question right there, it'll change your life. Will the decision I make glorify God? Will responding to Facebook the way I want to, will that glorify God? Will sitting here watching TV for the next four hours glorify God? Will buying a new car glorify God? I don't know, it might. Will going down to the Chamber of Commerce and telling those people what I think Will that glorify God? Will making my boss look stupid glorify God? Will taking care of my body glorify God? Will sleeping in glorify God? Well, it might. I mean, if you're sleeping in because you want, need the extra energy to get through VBS, because you will need the extra energy to get through VBS, I will. Okay. So if you're sleeping in to get that extra energy so you can minister to kids effectively, yeah, that'll glorify God. But if you're just sleeping in because you're just lazy, then no, that's not glorifying God. See, you need to do everything in a way that brings glory to God. That's why Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that you, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Everything we do, everything we do needs to be done with the glory of God in mind. In all your personal choices, okay? in all the areas of your life that are not exactly spelled out by the Word of God, and all the ways that you might exercise your rights... We need to consciously focus and ask ourselves, what brings glory to God? That is how you navigate the gray areas of your life. Okay? You will ask yourself, will this enslave me? Okay? How will this affect the lost? How will this affect believers? Is it wise? Can I do this with a clean conscience? And will it honor God? Now, let me just, just imagine with me. Just, just, I want you to think about this. What does your life look like if you decide to focus on just the last question and ask it in everything that you do at work? Does it change what you do at work? Does it change the way you behave? Does it change your attitude? What about at home? Okay, with your kids and your wife or your husband? Just ask the question, how does this decision affect them and does this glorify God? If you ask those two questions of the decisions that you make day to day, does it change things? Okay. What about when you're out and about and you have when you're not around anybody you really know and you have this opportunity to kind of get, you know, kind of loosen up and twist off? Okay? When you ask the question, does this glorify God? Does that change anything? You see, the time has come that those who follow Christ and call themselves by His name need to change our lives and our perspective in the decisions that we make. We need to actually stop asking, can I do something? And, and we really need to stop asking, should I do something? And we need to be asking these other questions that exist in that tension. Is, will it, will it enslave me? Will this, how this, will this affect 
non-believers? How will this affect a believer? Right? Is it wise? Can I do it with a clean conscience? And will it honor God? We need to learn to focus not so much on ourselves anymore, but instead focus on God and others. That's really the secret to this. In fact, Paul says a couple of really extraordinary things to wrap up each of these chapters. He says in, in um, chapter 10, verse 32, he says, I pray... I mean, excuse me. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of but that of many, that they may be saved. He says, "I don't focus on me. I focus on everyone else, because everybody else's salvation is really more important than my use of my freedom." Then he says in chapter six, verse nineteen, he says. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Didn't you know that Jesus paid a price for you? An incredible price for you? Do you realize how much it costs to set you free? Paul says, what an incredible price. An overwhelming price. An unimaginable price. I mean, Jesus, God in the flesh, innocent you know, of all sin, willingly allowed His body to be ripped to shreds as He was scourged for you. He willingly endured mocking and physical beatings and being spat on for you. He willingly allowed Himself to be stripped naked, nailed to a cross and hang there bleeding in unimaginable pain and thirst, being dehydrated and suffocating to death, hanging there, innocent of all the charges. He became the sin who knew no sin so he could become his righteousness. He did this for you. Okay? You. You know, after the, the very first message of this series, after we wrapped it up, uh, Hugh came up to me. He said, you know, the cross is a perfect uh, picture of tension. He said, uh, we're threefold beings. We're physical, emotional, and spiritual. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the physical tension as his body was stretched to the limit in pain and agony. He experienced emotional tension as he hung there, not caring for himself, but caring for you and me. Okay? saying to his father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Okay? And then he experiences the most devastating form of spiritual tension because when the sins of the world are cast upon him, he experienced something he never knew before. Broken fellowship with the father as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I sit there going, wow, man, I wish I thought of that. And if that wasn't enough, Hugh also says, you know, the cross is the greatest expression of grace and truth. It's the greatest expression of grace because Jesus willingly went to the cross to save us. It's also the greatest expression of truth because it reminds us of the truth that our sins have devastating consequences. But it also reminds us of the truth that Jesus is no longer there. He's no longer on the cross because He is risen. And so what Paul is saying is in light of that price that was paid for you, in light of the tension and the suffering that Christ went through for you, honor God. Right? Honor God. Honor God with your body. Honor God with your life. Honor God with your gray areas. And honor God with your morally indifferent acts. Just honor God. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you 
so much for your unending grace and your love and your mercy in our lives. You're so very good to us. I can't even think about the gospel without getting choked up because I just, I, of all things that I can't understand, that's just the one I can't, I can't wrap my head around is why you love me so much that you would do that. But I don't have to understand it. I just accept it and love it. And Lord, it is that fact that moves me to want to be obedient to you. It moves me to want to honor you. I don't do these things because I'm trying to make you love me. You already loved me. You proved it on the cross. You proved it before I could even like repent. You did that. Your word says that God proves His love for us and that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. And so I don't, try to, I don't try to be good and I don't try to obey and I don't try to think about other people and I don't try to honor you because I'm trying to win your favor. I already have it. I'm just trying to do those things because I'm moved by that image in my head of Jesus taking a beating from me and giving up His life for me. I just pray that's where we would all be. That we would just decide today that, you know, it's enough for us to just think about ourselves all the time. The rest of the world can do that. I'm going to think about Jesus first. I'm going to think about other people. And I'm not going to get all, like, crazy and dumb. I'm just going to make sure that I'm going to do things in a way that honor you. I'm going to ask the questions. Will this enslave me? Will this hurt unbelievers? Will this hurt a believer? Is it wise? Can I have a clean conscience doing this? And most importantly, will it, will it glorify you? And so, Father, I just pray all of our hearts would be moved that way, that we would just glorify you in every aspect of our lives. I pray for that all the time. And I pray like in this congregation you'd raise up a people who love you so desperately that they're willing to become obedient and get out into the world and share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with the rest of the world. And I pray, Father, that you would bless those who are here and that you would watch over those who are not here and give them traveling mercy so they can come home. I pray, Father God, that you would pierce all our hearts today and meet all of our needs today and help us to come in your presence even closer and that we would enjoy you and know you more. And I pray, Father, you are glorified in that. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.